0: Welcome to BBC History Magazine's weekly podcast. I'm Dave Musgrove, the editor of the magazine, and this is the first of our February 2012 podcasts. Don't forget, BBC History Magazine is on sale in all good news agents and on subscription. Our website is historyextra.com, and you can follow us twitter.com slash historyextra and facebook.com slash historyextra. Coming up this week...
2: I think the theme of the series is the devil's in the detail and the detail is in the logistics.
0: That's Saul David on the importance of logistics in military history. I think if you
3: had a homosexual who who proved himself in that environment,
0: he would have been accepted. That was Stephen Bourne discussing homosexuals who served in the Second World War. Before we get started, uh, we're approaching the 100th issue of the BBC History Magazine podcast. So, in recognition of this event, I'm going to try to introduce a new feature, which I'm ingeniously calling Ask the Historian. The idea is that I'll find a cutting-edge historian of a particular subject and ask you, our faithful podcast listeners, to tell me what questions you'd like me to put to him or her. We're going to start with Dr Thomas Asbridge, reader in medieval history at Queen Mary University of London and an expert on the Crusades. He's currently presenting a BBC series on the Crusades, in fact. So, get in touch with any questions you have on the Crusades in general or any points that you'd like to raise specifically from his TV series, if you've seen it, and I'll endeavour to get answers from him. I'll be talking to him on Monday the 6th of February, so get your questions over to me before then, either by tweeting me at twitter.com forward slash historyextra or by email to podcast at historyextra.com. Right, first interview, Saul David is presenting a new BBC4 series called Bullets, Boots and Bandages about the importance of military logistics in history. I caught up with him to find out why logistics make a difference. So you've been working on a new BBC series, BBC TV series, um, and the, the basic cut of it is that it's all about logistics and war. So... Would I be right in thinking that, that, that your view is that logistics is the, sort of, the unheralded hero of warfare through history?
2: I think most military historians know that logistics are absolutely crucial to commanders winning at war. It's just that we tend to feel instinctively that what the audience wants, the reader wants, is the payoff of a battle and and therefore far too much concentration tends to come about how that battle's fought, really the strategy, the operations and the actual tactics of fighting the battle. What they forget about is that you've got to get that army there in the first place, that army's got to be healthy and that army's got to have the right gear to fight the battle. So how do you manage all of that? that and what's fascinating is that probably 95 percent of a soldier's life is actually spent dealing or at least being concerned with those three different elements the actual combat bit is a tiny percentage
0: how do you make that story interesting then? because obviously the, the, as you say that the story itself the fighting the guns the the explosions that's the interesting stuff certainly in, in a visual in a visual way so how do you make it how do you how do you inspire people to understand the background
2: Well what's fascinating about logistics is that it seems like a relatively dreary subject, doesn't it? You know, who who's gonna get that kit, how they're gonna move the bullets, how they're gonna move the food, and how they're actually gonna move the soldiers. But actually, when you get down into the finer detail, you get these wonderful human interest stories. And one of my favorites from the series came out of Um, the story of the Waterloo Teeth. Now, we all know about the Battle of Waterloo, but what's so clever and counterintuitive about looking at logistics is that you begin to look at both before a battle and also after. Now, in this case, as soon as the battle's over, the uh, camp followers, all kinds, and also other soldiers, including British soldiers, immediately went round the battlefield knocking out teeth. Now, why are they doing this? They're doing this because there was huge demand in Britain for false teeth, chiefly among the money classes because they'd eaten an awful lot of sugar, which had been coming into Britain in the 18th century. And they'd lost their teeth. And the best replacement teeth were, of course, human teeth. Now, they generally get them from cadavers, but what better time to get them than after a battle? And the reason the Waterloo teeth became such a prized possession, they used to cost roughly £30, which is the equivalent of 300, 3,000, in fact, they used to cost roughly 30 pounds, which is the equivalent of 3,000 today, is because not only were they young men's teeth, they knew they were healthy and they'd look good, they also gave a kind of sense of patriotic pride because these were teeth taken from the great victory at Waterloo.
0: And, can, and I think there's footage of you like wandering around Waterloo. You don't actually find those teeth on the ground now, do you?
2: <laughs> no, you can't find them on the ground, although it is amazing what you can still find on battlefields. No, there are various uh, collections of teeth still in uh, certain museums and probably actually in private ownership that are clearly marked Waterloo teeth. And it seems very morbid, doesn't it? But at the time, it was a completely natural and, as I say, patriotic thing to buy a set of Waterloo teeth.
0: OK, so that's Waterloo, so that's, that's early 19th century. How far back does this story go? When do we start seeing logistics as, as anything that anyone takes any notice of?
2: Well, of course, as far back as armies have fought, logistics has been a key. I mean, Alexander the Great famously was one of the first to really get... Uh, uh, his head round the movement of armies and the need to supply them when they were on the move, move and to keep them properly, properly fed and, and healthy and fit. Um, we, begin to, we we tend to concentrate a little bit later than that. But the, one of the earliest stories we tell is, is, interesting enough, of Vindolanda, this fort that the Romans have on Hadrian's Wall. Why is that interesting? It's interesting because it shows us the level of detail to which the Romans were prepared to go to keep their soldiers fit and healthy. So what do, what do we find at Vinderlander? Well, the famous tablets at Vinderlander that were discovered uh, 20 or 30 years ago, a lot of them were correspondence sent from the fort and in particular, as far as logistics are concerned, you could see that they were ordering foodstuffs from all over empire. So there they are, based really on the fringes of of empire, with the barbarians on the one side and the the British, who weren't always that uh, pro-Roman on the other. Uh, These guys were on right on the edge of empire, and yet they were still ordering olive oil from Spain. You can see them ordering beer from Belgium. So in other words, the Romans realised that it was important to keep these guys happy. And the way it did it is by making sure they had a little little taste of home.
0: Mm. So, so Vindolanda, that's, it's the fort just south of Hadrian's Wall, and the tablets are, the, are these waterlogged items that were discovered in pits. And they, they are amazing, aren't they? Because they are basically, they, they are instruments of organisation. You can see the, the Roman officers writing on them, saying what they wanted, and these are you know, letters that they sent away around the Empire to try and try and get their resources in.
2: The tablets are, are one of the greatest finds, I think, in uh, archaeological finds in Britain, in, in, the, in certainly in the last hundred years. And they tell us n- not only an awful lot about the social life of the Garrison, but also about its military structure and the way it's actually fed and controlled. And uh, you get examples of individual soldiers ordering things, but you also get the quartermasters putting out the big orders for the sort of things that it knows that it's, uh, his soldiers are going to require to keep them happy. And so the challenge that faced the quartermaster for the Roman army at Vindaladi is not that different from the challenges of the facing quartermasters of the British army in Afghanistan today.
0: Okay. So did the Romans basically get logistics and get get logistics right? Is that part of the reason why they were militarily so successful?
2: If you want to understand the success of the Romans, um, uh, you must look at the way that they care for and move and uh, keep healthy their army. It's all about logistics. Yes, they're very effective when they fight, but they've got to get to the battlefield and the sort of condition and morale is hugely important in all of this and another element that we discovered at Vindolanda is how much care they took in for for both recreation but also health so for example they'd have steam rooms most people in Britain hardly bathed for almost another 2,000 years but the Romans had steam rooms that enabled the soldiers not only to get a bit of recreation but also to stay properly clean and healthy.
0: Okay so let's step it forward a bit to the to the medieval period was in you know from the from the eleventh century onwards I guess what was happening then were were armies interested in logistics at that point, and if so who who was the most successful person in in, in getting that sorted
2: well uh, the broadest theme I suppose of the whole series is that the successful commanders are those who take care of logistics and probably the best known in the medieval period is henry v mm. now henry v's Agincourt campaign of course we tend to remember it for the battle. What we should remember it for is for the extraordinary uh, attention to detail he puts into the campaign in the first place. Now, the piece we concentrate on, so, counterintuitively, is Arfleur. Initially, when they first land in France, they have to take Arfleur as a base, as a supply base, so they can then move... Deeper into France. What happens at Arfleur materially affects the rest of the campaign. We're chiefly interested in the series in telling the story of the dysentery and the illness that affected the soldiers at Arfleur. And there's this amazing artifact known as the Arfleur Roll, which is a record of all the soldiers that were given permission to leave the army. So not only have they taken care of all the details of putting the army together, all the food they'll need, exactly what they'll require in terms of kit. To fight in France, but they're also numbering them off literally by name, every man who is no longer fit to fight. And these three or four thousand soldiers who cannot carry on in the campaign are the reason why Henry V marches across France instead of deeper into France, marching across, of course, and eventually ending up in Agincourt. That he wins at Agincourt is is what we remember from the campaign. But the real heart of the story is at Arfleur and the dysentery.
0: Would would Henry have understood? the concept of logistics? Would he have understood the term and would, would he have in any way studied it or was this just something that, that came naturally to him and his army and he knew that it was something that had to be done?
2: No, he might not have called it logistics, but it would have, it would have formed exactly the same preoccupation in his mind that it has done of any great commander. And I would go back and include people like Julius Caesar in, uh, and, and Hannibal in that equation. They knew that the trick was to get enough soldiers to the battlefield in a condition to fight. You've got to move over long distances. And, of course, in the time before they had uh, the internal combustion engine, before you you can use steam-powered ships to move armies quickly and relatively safely, you had to literally march them there. And that required a huge logistical enterprise. And you can see this in Henry's preparations for the uh, Agincourt campaign. The R-flow rolls are just an indication of the sort of detail that he was prepared to go uh, but the preparations, of course, before the campaign begun, were huge, and he took a personal interest in that.
0: Okay, so when you're thinking about the, the British armed forces as a whole throughout history, is there is there one person who you who you would say he's he's the chap? And I suppose it probably would be a, a man. He's the chap who's who's really got logistics sorted, who really made it his own, and and was therefore able to be militarily successful.
2: I think there are three commanders in uh, recent. British military history, who stand out. First of all, the Duke of Marlborough, the War of the Spanish Succession. Secondly, the Duke of Wellington, Napoleonic Wars. And thirdly, Montgomery, the Second World War, El Alamein. And it's no coincidence that all three became hugely successful commanders. Did they become successful because they were great battlefield commanders? Well, that was just part of the story. I think what this series is bringing out is that without taking care of logistics, and that involves 80% of his time, probably, a military commander's time, they will not be successful on the battlefield.
0: So what did did Marlborough specifically do then? How how did he organise his logistical operation?
2: Well, there's a lovely story that comes out of the uh, Blenheim campaign. Blenheim in 1704, uh, the context of it's extraordinary. The French have really um, had an unbroken run of battlefield success for 50, 60 years prior to this. Louis XIV's armies are the most vaunted in Europe and Britain really is playing second fiddle to them. Marlborough marches his allied army with a big stiffening of British troops in this 250-mile march from the Low Countries to the Danube. And the skill in this campaign is not so much the fighting of the Battle of Blenheim, although he does have to show his tactical Uh, ability there too it's getting his army down there and it's getting it down there without the french really knowing where he's going and one of the reasons he's able to do this is because of his extraordinary attention to detail on the march he makes sure that his soldiers have a spare pair of shoes when they're marching he only marches them at certain hours of the day so they're not too exhausted he makes sure that there's always food waiting for them when when they arrive at their camp at night And most importantly of all, he's invented a two-wheeled sprung cart which enables his army to move at roughly twice the speed of most of his uh, contemporaries, his, his opponents. And this enables him to usually have the advantage of surprise.
0: H- had he himself actually invented that or was that one of his...
2: It's one of the great questions of history. Did he invent it or did he encourage its invention or did he spot the fact that something like that had been made and that he certainly introduced it into the British army. It, it, he, he played a very important role in introducing it into his army, the victorious army of 1704. And of course, Marlborough. this wasn't just a, a lone victory. He then fights a whole series of other battles in which he overcomes the French and in each one of them the two-wheeled sprung cart plays a role,
0: and of course Marlborough, as a result of his victories, gets Blenheim Palace and and with the famous tapestries in it. And am, am I right in thinking that there's there's some element of the of the of the logistical operation in the tapestries that you can see the cart itself in one of the tapestries?
2: It's very telling, actually. If you know what you're looking for, you go into. Blenheim, and most people will look at the famous Blenheim tapestries, and what they'll tend to concentrate on is the one where he is taking the surrender from Marshal Tallard on the field. That he's he's on his horse and he's looking very kind of grand in his red coat. But the really telling one is the one opposite that in the same room, where right in the centre is this 2 wheel sprung cart, and that is not a coincidence. It's a picture of his army on the move, and the major frame, the major concentration of that picture is the sprung cart, and. Marlborough himself knew its importance, and he obviously made this clear to whoever was putting together those tapestries.
0: Mm, okay. Um, so so he, he got it right, Wellington got it right, and Montgomery got it right. Is there anyone you consider who, who avowedly got it wrong, who, who wasn't any good at this side of things?
1: Well,
2: probably the best example of getting logistics wrong, although you can sympathise with him, is Napoleon. Napoleon was a man who took great keen interest in logistics and uh, many of his victories were founded on that in fact he invented a system of moving an army which was the core system and this was a f- this was effectively reducing the size of the army into smaller self-contained units so that it didn't always have to advance on the same axis, the same route therefore it wouldn't eat up and destroy that route, it could live off the land moving on a number of different roads now the problem with the core system is it encouraged the size of his army to grow in size, so Big, of course, that by the time they eventually invade Russia in 1812, 400,000 men are moving into Russia, and it's the sheer logistical enterprise that is almost bound to break down under the conditions of moving across those huge distances in Russia. But also when uh, winter finally catches up with them, and we concentrate in the in episode one of the series on one particular detail, and it's a fascinating detail, and the detail is winter horseshoes. Now, when he invades Russia, of course, it's summer, and he's assuming he's banking on a relatively quick campaign. As winter sets in, he discovers he doesn't have enough winter horseshoes. The horses are still wearing summer horseshoes. Why is this a problem? Because a horse, particularly a horse towing a wagon with his supplies in it, cannot get up and down hills unless he's wearing winter horseshoes. The horse will be dragged down by the cart It'll be crushed by the cart. It'll die because it's exhausted trying to move this cart without any traction. And the army eventually will starve. And that's exactly what happened.
0: So so really, the devil is absolutely in the detail for, 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 you know, military history there. And, you know, if he'd got that right, then we would have been looking at a totally different consequence.
2: I think the, um, the, the theme of the series is the devil's in the detail and the detail is in the logistics. And it's not in the final decision that's made to move this amount of troops here or there on the battlefield, although that can, of course, make a difference right at the end of the story. But they can't even get to that point where they can fight the battle unless details like horseshoes are taken care of
0: you, you mentioned a bit earlier about um uh, sort of industrialization and, and and railways and such how how does how does that change the situation how does that change the understanding of logistics as we start to get uh, all these new inventions and, and and ways of doing things coming in from the 17th 18th century, century onwards
2: I think one of the loveliest stories about industrialization changing war is in the moving of the armies episode and we talk in particular about the development of railways now railways famously come in as we know in 1830 but within 30 years the network of railways is beginning to expand hugely across Europe and there's one man a Prussian who realises its military potential. And he's called von Moltke, Helmuth von Moltke, who by 1870, the Franco-Prussian War, is the uh, is the chief of staff of the Prussian army. Now, von Moltke realises that if you can use railways, the network of civil railways, for military use in war to get enough troops to one particular spot, you can overwhelm your enemy. You, you can you can outmaneuver him because you've got more troops there quicker than he can get them there. It's a bit like Wellington News... It's a bit like Marlborough using his cart. And for 10 years prior to the Franco-Prussian War, he is pouring over railway timetables, stock, making sure that when the time comes, he can move his troops quicker than the French. And that's exactly what happens in 1870 in the Franco-Prussian War. He can bring more force to bear than they can. Yes, the battle still has to be won, but it makes it a hell of a lot easier if you've got more troops to do it.
0: So is the Franco-Prussian War uh, a, a real logistical war then? Is it, is it one where you see say that's really where logistics come into, into play properly?
2: I think the Franco-Prussian War is probably the greatest example of a logistical war where getting logistics right means victory and one follows the other really quite rapidly. And I suppose evidence of this is the fact that the French realise they have lost the Franco-Prussian War because of railways and they're determined that it won't happen again. So they set up a system that... They will use railways by 1914 to move three and a half million men to their frontiers very quickly. Now, this doesn't stop the initial German breakthrough through Belgium and into France. But what it enables the French to do once that breakthrough has happened is move troops from the eastern frontier back to Paris to stop the Germans on the Marne. The so-called miracle of the Marne is one at the Gare de l'Est, the, the railway station on the east of Paris, because that is the hub of the railway system for most of the troops who were fighting in the First World War for France
0: better just tell us a bit more about the Franco-Prussian War. I mean, it's not something that here in Britain we know much about. Is this an important conflict?
2: I suppose the Franco-Prussian War was later um, completely subsumed in, in, in common knowledge by the First World War and the Second World War, but it was a hugely important war because it led directly to the unification of Germany. If Prussia beats France in 1870, it can then persuade the other German states that a greater Germany is necessary. That's exactly what happened. So you could say that the railways in the Franco-Prussian War lead to victory, they lead to the unification of Germany, and ultimately they lead to a Germany strong enough to take on uh, the rest of Europe in the First World War and arguably the Second World War too. So it has huge ramifications.
0: Okay, last question. Obviously, you, you know your military history, so uh, so there isn't that much that would surprise you about, about, about this subject. But in the research for this programme, this series, has there been anything where you thought, well, that is, that is really quite surprising. I did not know that.
2: The most wonderful story that's come out of this that I didn't know about before is the fact that the Conquer played a crucial role in the shell crisis of 1915 and 1916, the horse chestnut, and it goes something like this. To fire uh, bullets and shells by 1914, you needed something called cordite, and to make cordite, you needed acetone. Now, acetone was chiefly made by the Germans, but once the First World War begins, you can't get acetone from the Germans. They make it in a chemical, uh, uh, their chemical industry makes it. So you've got to produce your own acetone. Well, they, they find a wonderful chemist called Caim Wiseman, who, of course, plays a prominent role in Zionism after the First World War. And Wiseman works out a way of making it using material from Argentina But when that material gets cut off because of the uh, U-boat actions during 1915, 1916, 1917, they have to use something else. If they don't, the guns are literally going to stop firing. And so it's Wiseman who discovers that conkers can be turned into acetone. And an order is sent out all over Britain secretly... uh, to tell headmasters to ask their school children to collect conkers they're not told what it's for it's vital to the war effort but they're told to do it and one of the most wonderful documents we uh, have in this series is a copy of one of these letters um, that is sent out to a headmaster and really there's this great image of me standing there with a shell in one hand and a conker in the other and it's extraordinary to think that one produces the other
0: Wow, that's, that is astonishing. That must have sorely uh, affected the, the Conquer championships. The school
2: <laughs> Well, you know, I mean, growing up, and I'm sure you were the same, David, we, we used to bake them, we used to put them in the oven, we'd put them in vinegar, you know, any way you could to get one over your enemy. But the idea that a Conquer that you would collect for recreation actually played such a key role in the First World War, I'd never heard before. And it's something that comes out of looking at logistics, the sort of things we often overlook. Just go to indeed.com slash history extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
0: So that was Saul David. We published a piece on the Conquer story that Saul mentioned in our November 2011 issue. If you missed it, it's on our website now at historyextra.com slash Conker. While you're there, you might want to look at the Blenheim tapestries that Saul also talked about in the interview. Go to historyextra.com slash Blenheim for a slideshow gallery of them. So the BBC4 series Bullets, Boots and Bandages starts on the 2nd of February in the UK. Saul David also has a new book out, All the King's Men, A History of the British Redcoat. It's published by Viking Now. And in the March issue of BBC History Magazine, which goes on sale on the 28th February in the UK, we take a detailed look at the story of the Redcoats, so do keep an eye out for that. Right, on to our next interview. Each February, a number of events take place in Britain under the umbrella of the Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Transgender History Month. To mark the occasion, historian Stephen Bourne has written an article for our February issue about the role of homosexuals during the Second World War. Although homosexuality was then illegal in the British Armed Services, it appears that for some there was an unofficial period of toleration. The magazine's deputy editor, Rob Attar, caught up with Stephen to find out more.
1: What was the legal status of homosexuals in Britain when the Second World War broke out?
3: When the Second World War broke out, homosexual acts or sexual acts between two men was against the law and punishable with with a prison sentence. Uh, That was the situation in 1939 and continued right through to 1967.
1: Um, And was there any distinction at this point between gay men and lesbians?
3: There was a distinction between gay men and lesbians in relation to the law. Lesbianism was never made a criminal offence and the 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 idea behind that is allegedly Queen Victoria didn't believe that two women could have sex, so it was never considered an option in in law, if you understand yeah. it. Yeah. But, but with 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 men, two men in a sexual act, it, and of course the Oscar Wilde uh, trial uh, brought that out into the public domain in in a big way. Yeah. And I don't think the gay male, if you like, community ever recovered from that for 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 years and years and years.
1: So you, you'd have to actually be engaged in sexual acts then? You, a man who professed to be gay wouldn't be in trouble unless it could be shown that he was actually actively homosexual? Uh, uh,
3: I understand that it, if two men were found in bed together having sexual relations then they could go to prison not being homosexual per se wasn't necessarily prison a prison offense Mm. so so people like Quentin Crisp could walk the streets of London in a flamboyant extrovert manner if they chose that kind of lifestyle and, and appearance and public appearance but they could be targeted by the police. They could be targeted by thugs, homophobic people, which indeed Quentin Crisp was. But he was the more flamboyant, yeah. extrovert type of person, uh, being true to himself. I mean, that was the way he was. He did dye his hair. He did yeah. henna his hair. He did uh, uh, dress in in a, in, a, in in that kind of flamboyant way, and and made. A kind of spectacle of himself and he he drew attention to himself and, and now in hindsight that was a very brave thing to do but most gay men homosexuals at that time didn't.
1: So when the Second World War broke out what was the status of homosexuals within the army? Were they at that point allowed to serve in the armed forces?
3: With regard to the armed services in 1939 and for the duration of the war yes sexual relations between two men would have still been a criminal offence and punishable by being uh, court-martialed, thrown out of the services, whether it be the army or the navy or or the RAF. And so it it didn't change at all. Uh, But what I've picked up on in my research was that because of the shortage of manpower, particularly when we had incidences like the Battle of Britain Mm. and we lost thousands and thousands of, of, of RAF crews uh, and so that's when for example more men from the West Indies were encouraged to come over and join the RAF whereas before there'd been some sort of colour bar against yeah. black recruits and indeed for the duration of the war it seems as though there was a relaxation of attitudes towards gay men serving just for the duration of the war. That's not to say that gay men were still hounded out, court-martialed, thrown out, imprisoned. It it wasn't a blanket policy or anything like that, but there was, for the duration, while we were fighting a common enemy, a relaxation of rules, uh, and some, not all, but some gay men found themselves in a situation where they could join the armed services and have a relatively easier time than than they would have before the war, where they would have been if they'd been found out, hounded out completely. So there was a kind of unofficial tolerance. Unofficial. Completely unofficial. As far as I know, there was no official recognition of homosexuals. As far as I know, I mean, I haven't really delved into the archives to see what was reported but what i've picked up on so far because you have to understand this this subject hasn't really been researched in great detail and in great depth it's been touched upon in some histories of gays and lesbians in britain but not in any great depth but but i don't feel that there was an official policy
1: and did a lot of homosexual people serve in the armed forces in the second world war
3: I wouldn't have a clue about figures of homosexuals or men who identified mm. as gay at that time serving, but certainly there would have been thousands and thousands of gay men serving in the armed services, and certainly the Navy before the war, during the war and after the war, was always one of the services that attracted mm. uh, um, gay men.
1: Um. And so when there were gay men serving in the, the armed forces, were they able to be openly homosexual or did a lot of them still remain in the closet?
3: I would say that the majority of gay men serving in the armed services during the war tended to keep their sexuality a private affair. But some who were identified or, or some who maybe came out as gay, were there, there is evidence to show that they were tolerated that they were embraced by the their, their uh, fellow men in in the services and and some became mascots mm. some had sexual relations with, with other men uh, on board ships and in, in prison of war camps and so on and so forth it, it's I think some gay men did find themselves uh, accepted in, in, in a way it it, it, it in, in some of that, because you see, when you, when, when you think about it, you've got an army unit or, or, or a crew on a ship or in the RF, they're fighting a common cause, they're fighting the Nazis, but they're also in a very small, enclosed, tight knit group. Mm. And they, they have to support each other. They have to take care of each other or watch each other's back, so to speak, and take care and of each other. And I think if you had a homosexual who, who proved himself in that environment, he would have been accepted. But I don't think mm. that was common.
1: And there were one or two um, homosexual men who served in the armed forces with some distinction as well, weren't there? Mm.
3: Yes, the... the the article that I researched for, for the BBC History magazine, I, I uncovered more and more information about this RAF pilot, this RAF hero from the Battle of Britain called Ian Gleed, And I became intrigued because he wrote his memoirs and pu- had them published in 1942. And it was really very much an account, a first-hand account, a very good account, of his experiences in the Battle of Britain, flying Spitfires, crash landing, all sorts of adventures and and, and and traumatic experiences that he had. But he won the DFC and the DSO. He was commended by King George VI on two occasions. He he was a real Battle of Britain RAF hero. But in his memoirs, he was advised very strongly by his publisher, Victor Galantz, to insert a few paragraphs about a girlfriend Mm. called Pam. And when I read this, it didn't ring true, as Mm. the rest of the book did, but I just accepted, or maybe he did have a girlfriend, maybe he was bisexual, because I knew he was gay, because that came out uh, in a television documentary interview with one of his RAF uh, lovers, uh, Chris Gotch. But then I discovered that that was uh, something that he was asked to do to cover the fact that he was a confirmed bachelor. And that mm-hmm. was the word that, that was used to describe uh, gay men in those days, their confirmed bachelors, and to, to kind of obviously portray him as a heterosexual yeah. RF hero. But this is 1942, and homosexuality is still a criminal offense. So being gleed couldn't be openly gay. And yet, when you... Listen to Christopher Gotch's interview in the BBC documentary, television documentary that I found, that was made in the 1990s mm. for the Time Watch series. It, he was known to be homosexual amongst his own group in the RAF and was accepted. And he was quite open about it within a small circle of friends. But he took a lot of risks in that respect. He not only took risks as an RAF pilot in the war... And he was, sadly, eventually shot down over Tunisia and killed in action and, and, uh, in 1943. Very, very tragic loss, as, as there were many in the RAF. Uh, but it wasn't until the 1990s that one of his lovers in the RAF was able to speak openly about that. And I think all that was covered up, even when his biographer did a biography in 1978 that was published about Ian Gleed? no mention. Really? It, did, it did confirm that Pam was fictitious, mm. this girlfriend was fictitious, but didn't explain, the, and I'm sure the biographer must have known, yeah. it couldn't have been that big a secret. But still, in the 1970s, there's this climate of you can't associate this RAF hero with, taint him with homosexuality.
1: And something that you mentioned earlier was about people saying prison camps or various other places where you actually mm. had heterosexual men mm. engaging in homosexual relationships was that commonplace
3: again i think because men heterosexual men men of all sexual persuasions were of thrown into this dreadful kind of situation particularly in prison camps mm. where they're where they living if I may say so, on top of each other, sort yeah. without any space or freedom or, or, or anything. Uh, I found this this unpublished memoirs of somebody in uh, of his prison camp experiences in the Imperial War Museum, and he's quite explicit about the mm. fact that there were male-to-male relationships of all different... Grades, that's not, the right, that's not the right word, but you, layers, multi-layers, mm-hmm. so that everything from two, a, a man that would give another man a present right to the other end of the scale where two men would have sex. Now, the thing to understand is they might not necessarily have been gay, because there is such a thing as two men having sex, but that doesn't make them gay two heterosexual men can have sexual relations but it's not that it doesn't they may not identify as gay or even be gay it depends on the situation it's not as clear cut as people think and so when men are thrown into that situation in the prisoner of war camp as indeed this this particular writer put down in his memoirs there was all sorts going on but it's not to say that all the men were up, right. up to up to this do it, you know, having sex. It, it, it was. I don't know the numbers, but but clearly the evidence is there. It's just something that has not been acknowledged or accepted. Uh, probably the opposite. It's probably been frowned upon and edited out of his, history books because it doesn't fit with. So there is very little information around. So it, it's mm. always interesting to uncover somebody's memoirs, unpublished. In this particular case that refers in one, one of his chapters to this.
1: And I suppose because at the time it was, this was, it would have been illegal, and even in later years there was still quite a lot of homophobic prejudice, mm. this could have been a lot more commonplace than people realised, because it just probably wasn't written down anything like as much as other mm. experiences were during the war. But there would have been a
3: climate of fear right up until 1967, when the Sexual Offences Act partially decriminalised homosexual, homosexuality, But the climate of fear would have continued, particularly for men from that generation. I mean, just because the the law changes doesn't mean that you feel suddenly relaxed and open. Mm. A a younger generation did, which is why in the 1970s we had the Gay Liberation Front. But let's not lose sight of the fact that in 1967, the Sexual Offences Act partially decriminalised homosexuality, but not in the armed services. So the RAF... Uh, the Navy and the Army did not decriminalise homosexuality until January 2000. So it's only in the last sort of, what, say, 11 years ago that that, that, that this this ban was lifted by by the Labour government, Tony Blair's Labour government. I never believed that that would happen in my lifetime. I really didn't. I grew up in the 60s, the 70s, the 80s and the 90s and I never believed that that would ever happen in my lifetime. And then suddenly the Labour government comes in, uh, Tony Blair's the Prime Minister, and whatever one may think of him now, it's it's good. like this is what they did and, and good for them. It was a fantastic, liberating thing, not just for the for the men and women who joined the armed services, because lesbians could still get chucked out as well. Lesbians mm. could still lose and, and did uh, get thrown out of the armed services as they were found out. Uh, uh it was liberating for those of us who were not in the armed services because for me as a as a as a man a gay man in Britain approaching middle age at that time i thought wow things can change
1: and so in the second world war there was this this period of sort of unofficial toleration of gay men in the armed services what happened when the war came to an end did that continue
3: no there's a very clear point at which the, the so-called relaxation of of views on homosexuality or homosexuals being in the armed services uh, ended, and that ended when the war ended. It, it, it ended for women when women who, who who were kind of almost liberated and had more freedom during the war to be independent and to, to uh, were expected to go back to, to into the home, into the kitchen, to raise families. And, uh, The the West Indians and West Africans from the the then colonies that we had were expected to go back home and leave Britain and go back. And, of course, that didn't happen, uh, as we know, with the post-war immigration. And, of course, gay men who served, and indeed lesbians who served during the war in the armed services, were expected to shut up and go back in the closet and not be open anymore and were not tolerated. And there was even... A kind of almost like a backlash against gay men because the law, as I, as I explained still stood. It was a criminal offence until 1967, um, and there was this homosexual witch hunt that that exploded in the sort of mm, sort of 1953 1954, where the where the the police that who had been turning a blind eye were, were now victimising and going out and, and witch hunting and and, and it, it was a terrible, terrible time.
1: So, do you think once this common enemy had disappeared then the, the feelings of friendship towards gay men disappeared as well because once they weren't fighting the Germans anymore they could start looking around them and find the enemies within Britain again?
3: Yes, I, I think what happened, it's just my opinion is that in 1945 when the war ended the British public the general public wanted to go back to what they saw or perceived to be normality, mm. the normality that they perceived that we had before the war started. And normality was no blacks, no gays, no women. You know, women go back to the homes. Blacks go back to Africa and the West Indies and gay men go back in the closet. So, because they wanted to... Because, they I mean, the British public... I'm not condoning that, obviously... It was wrong, but I can understand it because Mm. when you've gone through six years of hell, it it doesn't surprise me that most people wanted to get back to some sort of normality. What went wrong was that the attitudes should, the the more liberated attitudes and liberal Mm. attitudes of the war should have been promoted after the war, but they weren't. So we kind of went through a kind of rough time for many decades, I think.
1: You don't believe this period of tolerance during the Second World War did end up having a positive legacy?
3: I think it did have a positive legacy in a small way because Mm. the seeds were sown so that uh, many, many thousands, if you like, of heterosexual men who had served with gay men, um, at least the seed had been planted in their heads so that by the time the law changed, maybe some of those more enlightened straight men, heterosexual men... Could understand that, that gay men were not this threat, this, this, this um, abomination, uh, it's a shame that couldn't have been developed sooner and the law changed sooner. But certainly some of the heterosexual men who, who, who fought alongside gay men hopefully would have had a more liberal attitude but it didn't mean that it was going to change laws.
1: Well, I suppose the people that did change the law in the 60s would have served in the Second could, War Could
3: definitely. be. I haven't done any kind of research into that, but you're absolutely right. It, it could have been that some of the politicians and campaigners mm. who were heterosexual or even closet gay had served in the armed services during the war and had seen a more liberal, tolerant sort of attitude.
0: That was Stephen Bourne. Stephen is primarily a researcher on the history of Black Britain, and he's the author of Mother Country, which looks at the role of Black Britons on the home front during the Second World War. As I mentioned earlier, you can read an article by Stephen in our February issue. You can also find out more about LGBT History Month at lgbthistorymonth.org.uk. That's it for this week's episode. Next time round is astonishingly the 100th issue of the BBC History Magazine podcast. So you'll want to listen in, if only to be part of such a momentous centenary. BBC History Magazine's weekly podcast is recorded in Bristol and produced by Dave Gibson. Thank you, as ever, for listening.